Colossians, our series is called The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ, and we will see the beauty of that this morning as we look at chapter 1 together, uh, part of chapter 1 together. So let me begin by reading to you the infallible, inspired, authoritative Word of God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, as we find ourselves preaching through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, a regular diet here at King's Chapel. In the book of Colossians, we'll wrap this up in a couple of weeks, a month or six weeks from now, seven weeks, and jump back into Isaiah. We'll finish, wrap that book up, uh, all 66 books. We'll we'll cover the last 11, and uh, then we'll start a new series in the fall in our building. So, Colossians 1, 15. Continue to pray for the church and the building and the process um, as we continue to press on together. So, Colossians 1, 15 through 23, reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who were, once, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of, I, of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So, let me first bring you up to speed. We know that the human author of the epistle of Colossians is Paul. Yet we know that all scripture, 2 Timothy 3, tells us is breathed out, exhaled by God. And we read in 1 Peter that they are men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write what God intended for us to know about him. The Bible is the self-revelation of God. In fact, God is not knowable unless God makes himself known and he has made himself known. Through the scriptures, our understanding of God comes from the scriptures. All other ideas are assumptions and speculations, not revelation. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to the church of Colossae because some false teachers and some false teaching were questioning whether or not Christ was supreme, whether or not Christ was sufficient. They said, you know what, you started well with Christ But we can give you a deeper knowledge of the faith. We can give you a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding, a deeper experience of God's power. Just follow these certain teachings, certain rituals. These things haven't been told to you when Epaphras came and and preached the gospel to you at first. Who Paul calls in verse 7 of chapter 1, a beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ. But he wasn't getting it right. The Apostle Paul opens this letter indirectly Uh, really pushes up against his false teaching, speaking of his apostolic authority given to him and sent by Jesus Christ and given to him by the will of God the Father. 
Then in verses 3 through 8, he offers up prayers to, to, to God. And he tells the Colossian church that he's thanking God for what God is doing in their lives. He thanks them because he heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, their love for others. All because of the hope of the gospel. The gospel of truth, the gospel of grace that was first pe- preached really from Epaphras. And then verses 9 through 14, Paul continues to pray specifically for the Colossian church. We saw this last week. Paul asked the Father to fill them with the knowledge of God. Primarily, we said it was the knowledge of the gospel through the word of God. And as they became filled with the gospel, look what it says, verses 9 through 14. It would cause them to walk, verse 10, in a manner worthy of the Lord. That that their life and their attitude and their walk would reflect the gospel. And this would not only please the Lord, but look what it says, it would bear fruit in good deeds and in return increase their knowledge of the gospel. That's the point. We talked about what it means to please the Lord through the gospel, not do it from a religious standpoint, trying to gain something from God, but because of the gospel, we are to walk in a manner and please the Lord. We talked about that last week. In verse 11, we see the promise that God would give them strength, Power according to his glorious might for them to endure with patience and with joy. Giving thanks to the Father for he's the one that qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So we are to work, we are to walk out the gospel. God gives us strength by his glorious might to declare the gospel with joy and thanksgiving and and patience for all that he has done in Christ. And Paul in verse 13 and 14 kind of changed directions a little bit. The activity of God on our behalf as he rescues us from the domain of darkness. He transfers us, verse 13 and 14, transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The father brings us into the kingdom of his son by the work of the redemption of his son from the cross. He transfers us from slavery to freedom. We saw that last week. That's what redemption means, to buy back, to release from bondage for a payment. A payment was paid to release like a ransom payment, being liberated, freed. Forgiveness of sins involves both the the pardon of our sin's guilt and deliverance from the power of sin. And this gospel truth will pave the way from from thanking God for what what God is doing in the Colossian church and then how Paul prays for a specific uh, work of God in the Colossian church, the people there, to the work of the gospel, verse 13 and 14. Now Paul really turns and says, I want you to see who Jesus really is. This is probably one of the most Christological hymns in all of the New Testament. Christological is a a word that means the study of Christ, the person and work of Jesus. One of the most glorious Christological hymns in all of Scripture. The focus now becomes on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ before Paul gets into chapter 2, where he's bringing out, directly brings out the false teaching. He wants to lay down that foundation of who Christ is, what Christ has done. Very important passage of Scripture. And my hope this morning is, we're going to do some practical work on what this means to you practically, but my hope this morning is that our hearts and our minds become aware of and, and have a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is. To encourage us to strengthen our faith. So three movements today, Lord of creation, Lord of reconciliation, and Lord of presentation. Creation, reconciliation, presentation. Lord of creation. Verse 15, here we go. He, in whom we have forgiveness of sins, verse 15, 
Jesus, redemption, forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Most commentators say, agree that the expression is the image of the invisible God is reminiscent of chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, where Moses writes that God created man in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Two genders, male and female. Made in the image of God, first and foremost, means that every single human being, every single human being, has dignity, value, and worth Including, of course, we mentioned it a couple weeks ago, the unborn. Okay? That's why it's, it, 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 it's horrific of what they're doing to the unborn children in the mother's womb. Made in the image, dignity, value, and worth, including the unborn. Also, it's important to note that made in the Imago Day of God does not mean that we resemble God in every aspect and all his attributes. We don't. But we are creating the Imago Dei means we are to represent him, to, 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 to declare his glory, to demonstrate his glory, to represent him as the authority over his created order. We find that in Genesis. It also means that we were created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, means that we have the ability to think, to feel, and, and a will to decide. There it's the sense in which man reflects the image of God. But what Paul is doing here in this passage, the focus is on the preeminence of Christ and emphasizing that Jesus in the image of God is, has a singular, unique aspect and authority that no one else has, obviously, right? For it is said that this image bearer in our text, it says that in him and through him and for him, verse 16, all things were created. And we know from the Old Testament and New Testament, God is invisible. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 24, that, G, uh, that, that God is spirit. And that's, that may sound strange to you. How could something invisible, God is spirit, Jesus said. How could something visible have an image? In the image of God, icon, the Greek word. So while it's true that an image can represent or can be a representation of something, a symbol of what the object pictures, like an image on a coin, this context speaks of something much more grand. The terminology here in, in, in um, 115, image of God, is similar to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We went through that book a, a while back. The writer says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. John 1, 18 says that Jesus said he has, he, that, that Jesus has made God known. You're getting to the point of what this means. Christ, in Christ, the invisible God becomes visible. He shares the same substance as God and makes God's character known while on the earth. And the revelation of God in Christ is such that we actually see him. Paul is saying that Jesus brought God into human sphere of understanding. He manifested God. He's the image of God. Christ is the exact as well as the visible representation of God illuminating God's very essence. What did Jesus tell Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. F.F. Bruce, brilliant scholar, sums it up perfectly and he says this. To call Christ the image of God is to say that in him, the being and nature of God have been perfectly manifested that in him the invisible has become visible, end quote. 
As God's representation and representative, Christ brings clarity to an obscure notions of the immortal, invisible God who, who lives in unapproachable light. In Christ, we see who God is, creator, redeemer. We see what God is like, mercy and love. He not only reflects God, but as God in the flesh, he reveals God to us. Not just a copy, but the very embodiment of God's nature. God becomes man, dwells among us. Look what else it says. He's the firstborn over all creation. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses and other cults like uh, the Jehovah Witnesses in the Mormon church love to use this verse. And they love to point out that Jesus is not God, capital G, in their Bibles. He's a small case, lowercase g. He's a created being. And it says here he's the firstborn, firstborn of all creation. Well, they use terrible, what they call hermeneutics, which is the principles, uh, the art and science and principles of interpreting biblical text. What they say is they try to bring their Western mind or what they think firstborn means into the text. And firstborn can mean chronologically firstborn. We see that in Luke 2. Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary. She had other children. But this term is not always used chronologically, and that's what they miss. In Jewish families, the firstborn were the ones who inherited uh, they had the highest honor and responsibility and inherited what was uh, theirs from their family, from their father. Jesus could not possibly be chronologically the firstborn or the first created being, for he himself said, before Abraham was, I am. I go my. Greek word meaning ever existing, self existing, begin, no beginning, and no end. What you need to understand is the word firstborn can mean chronological order, but it also can mean rank, right of authority, primacy. The firstborn is the one who has the rights of the inheritance. Everyone in the Jewish context understood it doesn't, it's not always chronological. In fact, if you remember the story in the Old Testament, there was two sons, you know, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. Jacob was born second. But who got the blessing? Who got the inheritance? Who was considered the firstborn? It was the secondborn, Jacob. When you disqualify because of your sin, the father has the right to turn around and say, you're the firstborn. And he can inherit it. That's, what, that's what's happening. The authority, the inheritance, the ultimate supremacy over all things goes to Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know, is he talking chronological order or is he talking primacy and, and authority? Just read the next two verses. That's what I love about the Bible. I was recently, recently talking to a Jehovah Witness. Uh, I love talking to them. I chase them down, actually, to be honest. <laughs> if I drive home and they had left my house, I'd go get them and come bring them back. I'm like, are they Jehovah Witnesses? No, they're selling stuff. I'm like, all right, I'm just, just making sure. I love to ask them the question, is Jesus a created being? And lately, they don't want to answer that question. They want to go, and I'm, uh, just answer the question. Is Jesus a created being? Well, you know, I'm, no, no, no. Just answer the question. It's very simple. Yes, he's the first created being, firstborn. I'm like, okay, open up your Bibles to Colossians. And I make them open it up. And I make them read the next verse. For by him all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him, for he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for by him all things were created. All things were created. I love saying to them, well, all things 
and they say, ah, oh, if this happens to you, they say, well, all doesn't mean all. It means most. I said, well, I love to say this, all means all, and that's all all means. And that's, there's no other way. Jesus is the agent of creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, from nothing. The magnitude that we are reading in this text of his creation is amazing. It includes everything. Paul puts it all in there. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible. There's nothing left. Thrones, dominions, rules, authorities, angels, everything has been created by, for, and through him. Abraham Kuyper was a pastor, a theologian, uh, was a, a university president in a lecture in the Free University of Amsterdam. He said this, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. End quote. The Jewish people have the scripture. They know Genesis 1 and 2, that God's a creator. But the Greeks in Colossae had multiple gods. They, 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 they had this teaching that God could not have created the universe, not even a good God, or not a good God, I should say, because creation, physical realm, is evil. It was the spirit that is good. But Paul says right here in chapter 1, before he gets into the false teaching, that by him all things were created, through him all things were created, and for him. He is the ruler, the agent of creation. He existed before creation. You know the verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then Paul writes this, you can't get any more clear. John 1, 1, John 1, 3. All things were made through him. That's not even, doesn't even stop there. And without him was not anything made that was made. Can't get any stronger context or sentence to show that he is ultimate. He's created all things. And look what it says. All things are made for him. Everything in all of creation owes its existence and its goal. And it's, 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 it's all that it is belongs to Jesus. Owes its existence to Jesus. Everything exists to display the glory and the ultimate glory of Jesus in all of creation. Like an artist who has a thought and puts his thinking and his ideas into a sculpture, and then what he thinks he creates, and everybody looks back at the beauty and says, wow, look at that artist, look what he did. He, he imagined it, he planned it, he accomplished the work of beauty, and we remember, we see God's creation and see how beautiful and artistic and creative he is. In the same way, Jesus at the center of all creation, he rules over it for his own glory. And everything began with him. He's the Alpha and the Omega, just like we sang. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, family, the implications of that are staggering. This isn't some mindless kind of non-applicable truth, okay? This passage, if it's true, and it is true, should at least stretch our minds. It should govern the way we think. It actually should change us from the core of our being, if this is true. And it is true. 
When we truly understand what is being said here, it is quite silly and ridiculous that we would look anywhere else for the sufficiency of life, the meaning and the purpose in life. Since Jesus is Lord of creation, he holds all things together. He knows how to order our lives, to work in our lives. Where else could we go to, to, to be delivered from these powers, these rulers, these authorities? Paul is laying that out in verse 16 because he's talking about powers, dominion, because he's going to talk about it in chapter 2, how Christ disarmed the rulers, disarmed the authorities, put them to open shame. He triumphed over them in the gospel. The whole world is his. Why would we go anywhere else than Christ? Where would we go anywhere else for redemption? Have you gone to him today? Do you recognize his sovereignty and authority and creative power today? Paul is revealing he's the Lord of all. All things are under his rule, under the dominion of Christ, so we don't need to look anywhere else but in Christ because all things are his. He makes it. He rules over it. He's sovereign over the universe. Lord of creation, Lord of reconciliation, verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, here we go again, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might preeminence, be preeminent. Paul begins saying, look, Jesus is also the head of the church. He's not just supreme, has authority over the creation, but he's supreme authority in the church. He doesn't share it with anyone. Jesus is the head. And what denomination you come from or what biblical background you come from, but there's no one who's head of the church but Jesus. He doesn't share it with somebody else like, we're going to do this together. It doesn't work that way. He's the beginning of the church in that he established the church. He has its authority. He's authority over it. He, he is its power and source of spiritual life. He becomes all these things at the resurrection when he becomes what? The firstborn from the dead. Now, this is not saying that Jesus was the first one to be raised from the dead because he wasn't. Not what firstborn means. Again, it's rank. Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead who will never die again. Poor Lazarus. One of the clearest texts in the Testament, New Testament, that Christ's resurrection is understood to be the beginning of this new creation with more to come because Jesus Christ dies an atoning death in our place and conquers death once and for all. 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also those in Christ shall be made alive, each to his own order. Christ now is the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to him will come. He's the first fruits. Because Christ has become preeminent over the new creation, the church. He's also preeminent over the old creation, and we see here in this text that his preeminency over the church, over the new creation, is because he died and was raised again. That's our certainty. That's your certainty. If you're in Christ, you've repented of your sin, you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we eagerly wait with hope. Our expectation that our resurrection will come. Jesus said himself, because I live, you followers of Jesus will also live. 
And I want you to see what Paul is doing here, what Paul is showing us here. Jesus Christ, as the divine sovereign over the temporary first creation, he is also the divine human sovereign one who died and rose again over the new creation, the new everlasting creation, inaugurated, look, by his resurrection. And just as Christ was the firstborn of creation, he's the firstborn over the new creation, being raised from the dead, his promise to those who will come will also be raised. Why? So that in everything he might be what? Preeminent. He might be superior. He might be supreme. He might be first and foremost. And now Paul gives two reasons that support it. Look at verse 19. For, because, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself, how many things? All things. The word fullness is used in the Gnostic teaching. The Gnostic teaching uh, of, uh, uh, you, you probably read about if you do any kind of Bible study, really didn't come into full fruition until the second century. So there was, there was some of the Gnostic teaching in the first century. It was really the second century. But the word fullness they would use as these emanations. They would, they would, they would talk about this series of emanations coming from angels or these spiritual beings coming from them that, that can help us get close to God or mediate. And Paul takes that word, which would come to, later on, I think, in full bloom, and say, no, no, no. Fullness, all power resides in Christ alone. There, there's no other mediator. One of the ways that we can understand what verse 19 really means, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Some of your translations may be a little different. It's kind of a hard word, uh, phrase to dissect. But one of the ways that helped me a lot to understand that is to see that Paul was, was going back and using a terminology that comes from the Old Testament, which I think he was, Psalm 96 Excuse me, Psalm 67, 16, and other places in the scripture where it speaks that God is pleased to dwell. God is pleased to dwell on earth. And in particular, we know that God dwelt where? In his temple. And even more so, we've, we've talked about this. We, we've studied the Old Testament all the time here. He dwelt where? In the Holy of Holies, where the Shekinah glory came and the presence of God was there. Christ fulfills the role of the temple in which one finds the full presence of God. God's presence on earth is no longer there in the Shekinah glory, in the Holy of Holies. The temple curtain has been ripped, the Holy of Holies, but now it is in Christ. And Christ is tabernacling, or his tabernacling presence, if we can say that, on earth has been fully expressed in the incarnation. And in that God was what? Well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In whom I am well pleased, he says even. Colossians 2.9, even more explicit. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or the Godhead in some of your verses. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then if you jump down to verse 14, what does it say? And the Word dwelt, tabernacled among us. The fullness of God, the dwelling of God, the totality of divine power and attributes in Christ. Now, let's recognize together that understanding the nature of God has limitations on us puny-minded people. I'll speak myself, I'm a puny-minded man, okay? 
There are things about the nature of God that's a mystery, as it should be, because you're not him, all right? Some of the mystery is that, you know, we speak about the Trinity or the triunity of God, that God is one in essence, co-equal, co-eternal, yet revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see that all over Scripture. But one thing this passage teaches us, and I think that we have to be careful, you know, and it's helped me, is to see that God is not broken into three pieces. Modalism. It's what's called modalism. Patrick, you'll get that. Some of you might get it. That the Father is one slice of this God substance, and, and the Son is one slice of this God substance. The Spirit is one slice of this God substance. And in this pie, they're all put together probably by the crust or something, right? Paul says, no, all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of God is in Jesus. That means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell repletedly full in each other. All the attributes, not a single attribute of God, not a single part of the Godhead is not in Christ. The fullness of God dwells within Jesus. So that Jesus can reconcile us. Look at verse 20. Reconcile the universe. And through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth, in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You don't need to uh, 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 send some angelic beings up, some angelic beings to get to the knowledge of God, a ladder to climb up. There is one that can reconcile the universe, and that is Christ. And what I want you to see in this passage, especially when it says, um, and through him to reconcile himself all things, Jesus Christ is not just a Christian thing in the sense where you have your Lord and Saviors, we're this, we're that, you're Christian. Each of us have our own views, our own thoughts, our own perspectives, and everything is just fine. Okay? The entire cosmos, the all-inclusive universe, all of creation, all of time, every single thing in the cosmos has its beginning and end, is grounded on and centered on Jesus Christ and the work of his cross. Everything. Do you see the astonishing reality? The death of a, of, of a, of a, of a Jew in, in a God-forsaken mound called Calvary in a remote place in a Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, no headlines, became the earth-shattering, global, all-inclusive, comprehensive event that reconciles all of heaven and earth. That's what Paul is saying. This world that is corrupted and disordered and ravaged by sin that God loves has an intention to reconcile everything to himself. Romans 8. The creation waits with longing, eager longing, for the reeling of the sons of God. For creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, that's God, who subjected it in hope. What's the hope? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage free from his bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Sin defaced Christ's work in creation, but God will in Christ undo the consequences. He will bring harmony back to the universe that was once out of harmony with God through how the blood of his cross. So it says right in scripture. And therefore, God's ultimate, final, pinnacle 
Consummation is not just is, is not judgment to destroy, but reconciliation to renew and to restore the world and to make peace. It is the cross that establishes a peace, a new relationship between God and his creation. It is the cross that overcomes the gap caused by sin. Estrangement from God, estrangement from humans, and estrangement from created things. It's the cross. He's Lord of creation. He's Lord of reconciliation. And as sin destroys the relationship between creature and the creator, between man and God, God in Christ restores and, and, and brings back the relationship through his death. Wayne House writes this. The Christ hymn of Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a powerful statement about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ's supremacy is seen at every turn. The first portion focuses on his preeminent role in creation, while the second emphasizes his work as redeemer. To any Christian in Colossae or anywhere else today who may have been or is confused about Christ's role in the world, these verses testify to Christ's absolute authority, which he will not share with anyone, end quote. We're not talking about universal salvation. We're talking about universal reconciliation, which will include the just wrath of God against those who oppose the gospel, reject the Son, Turn from God at the great white throne judgment, the end of the millennial reign of Christ, where every sin will be satisfied. Justice will be served. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There'll be total reconciliation of the entire cosmos because of Christ. Lord of creation, Lord of reconciliation, and finally, Lord of presentation. And you, kind of turns to you, people, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death to present you, in order to present you, holy and blameless, above reproach before him. Family, let me tell you, the primary and natural condition of the heart is not ignorance that we need some more education, that we need some more information. The primary and natural condition of the heart the Bible says, is sinful hostility toward our creator that needs reconciliation. God's requirement is simple for us. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as I am perfect. And because God cannot and will not embrace sin, which all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are in an unreconciled condition. And isn't that what the temple was all about when God gave his law? The Holy of Holies, a place where the priest would gather, where the priest would go, excuse me, and reconcile sinners once a year to atone for the sins of the world. Jesus is that reconciliation. Paul tells us that the separation, the hostility toward God had to be dealt with in order to reestablish peace between God and sinful man. Calvin wrote this. For God, who is the highest righteousness, cannot love the unrighteous that he sees in us. All of us, therefore, have in ourselves something deserving of God's hatred. With regard to our corrupt nature and the wicked life that follows it, all of us surely displease God are guilty in his sight and are born to damnation of hell. All men being sinners are justly chargeable with inexcusable ungodliness and morality. 
immorality that cannot be saved by any effort or resources on their own, end quote. Pointing to the brokenness, pointing to the sin, alienated hostility, doing evil deeds. And yet Christ comes, the fullness of God, the dwelling of God, reconciles alienated sinners, hostile sinners, through the death, through his death on the cross. Notice, just in passing, not God who sinned. <laughs> it's not God who needs reconciliation. It is us. We're the ones alienated from a holy God. We're the ones hostile in mind toward an evil, toward a, and our evil deeds toward a holy God. And yet Paul declares that we have reconciliation. And notice the phrase he uses. It's interesting. It's the body of his flesh. Paul just talked about the deity of Christ, him being fully God and the fullness of God. And now he mentions here that, in verse 22, the body of his flesh, body of flesh by his death. And I think what Paul is saying here is that Jesus identifies himself with humanity as well, right? He shared our life, he shares our experiences, our suffering, he bears our, he bears our sin, he endures the full impact of the consequences of our sin, although he is sinless, we are sinful, and then he dies. That's the wages of sin is death. And God's reconciling purpose as he dies for our sins, look at the next verse, is to present, excuse me, is to present us, what? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciliation provided by the cross, the work of Christ, breaks the power of sin, heals our relationship with God, and brings us into an agreement with the holy character and the purpose of God. They are, look at the imagery, without blemish. Why are we without blemish? Why is that important to be without blemish? Well, you know from the Old Testament that the sacrifices had to be what? Without blemish. This comes from the world of sacrifice that, that offered up in, in the temple. They were unblemished. It had to be perfect. Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. This is so that the sacrifice of Christ in his perfect life, it says, for our sake God made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5. We blameworthy sinners have become the righteousness of God, and now we're presented before God now and on that day of judgment with no accusation being raised up against us. In Christ we are irreproachable, without sin and without corruption. And Paul emphasizes that Christ did that work. It is Christ, the atonement for our sins, his blood that we shed on the cross, satisfying God's wrath towards sin, purchasing our, 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 our forgiveness, securing us in our salvation, giving us his peace, reconciling sinful man, all of creation, to present us holy and blameless before God. That's a powerful truth. Verse 23 to close. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I of which Paul became a minister. Paul now calls the believers to stand firm. Stand firm, children, he says. Stand firm, not in your own strength, but stand firm what? In the gospel. The gospel we have seen already in chapter 1 is working, it's growing, it's producing good works. God's purpose of presenting us holy and blameless before Christ is still a work in progress here on this earth. And it requires a response. 
to, to, to have hope in the gospel, to stand stable and steadfast in the gospel. And we need to recognize believers that we've been reconciled to God to live a life that Paul said earlier is pleasing to God. Paul's not doubting there, by the way. Paul is not expressing doubts. That word if in, in the Greek should be translated, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. It's more positive. And Paul's saying, you will stand firm. I love this quote. One more quote. I don't use the quote as much, but this is a great quote. Phil Riken is a brilliant, brilliant scholar. This is so good. Listen to what he says. Paul here is reminding them that the gospel does not work like magic. The mind, the heart, and the will must be involved. Our minds must feed on Christ and his word. Our hearts are to focus on him in love. Our wills are to take their, pace, their practice and pattern from him. Present faith leads to present results. Present drinking is for present thirst. We must fill our lives every day with him. End quote. Listen, in light of our reconciliation, in light of what Christ has done to forgive us of our sins, in light of we've been delivered from darkness to the glorious kingdom of his beloved son, we ought to do all that we can by the power of the spirit through the gospel to live out our lives in a way that pleases the Lord. It's that simple. We don't earn the favor of God by walking a certain way, but we have already got the favor of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ who gives us everything we need and therefore our response is gratitude, love, and obedience. Very, very clear. We want to be really clear. Because of the hope of the gospel. That's what he says. They're not going to fall away. They're going to continue in the hope of the gospel. They were once alienated and hostile. They were doing evil things, yet God steps in and reconciles us. And out of response to that, as I said, we respond with faith and we respond with perseverance. Let me just say one more word about perseverance. That's what this is about. This is about persevering in the faith. Okay? This is an exhortation to stand firm in the gospel. And we need to hear that this morning. But your preservation or your perseverance in the faith, your continuing the hope of the gospel, is not a work you do. As if you can lose your salvation. You can't lose something you didn't earn. Your preservation, your perseverance in the faith, your continued hope in the gospel is proof, it is evidence of your salvation. Those who will endure to the end will show themselves being genuinely his. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. Our salvation is guarded and kept, Peter says. And we continue in the faith, showing the proof of our salvation. And the gospel message that Paul teaches is a minister. He's a minister, he just, like, just, like, just like Epaphras is. Now, listen carefully and we'll close. Just think with me another minute. If Jesus Christ is Lord of creation, all things were made by him, for him, and through him. And he holds everything together. He's the glue. He's the bond. He's the adhesive. He manages and keeps everything secure. Should we live in fear? Sometimes the fears and anxieties we face day in and day out, I'll speak for myself, is because the disaster, the news hits us so fast. So quickly, what's going on locally and around the world, we have so much information, workplace violence, school violence, flood, there's so much going on, and the news kind of strengthens the impression that the world is a dangerous and dark place that, is, that really has no rhyme and no reason. And we can easily fall into the conclusion and the beliefs that everything in the world that is going on is purposeless. 
We just got to get through. But here we learn that's not the case. Our universe is not a godless and impersonal incident done randomly. Jesus Christ is at the center, its origin and its destiny. And the, the, the resurrection victory of God in Christ is foundational. The very fabric of the cosmos, in spite of the appearance to the contrary. God still has a plan. God will oversee his plan of this broken and corrupt world. And he will accomplish his glorious purposes intended from the very beginning. We're meant to be here. We're not, it's not about uh, this world of impulse and, and impersonal forces. And family, if you have, and I have, if we have the wrong concept of creation, if we have the wrong concept of reconciliation, if we have the wrong concept of our presentation before God, it'll lead us to a wrong view of humanity, a wrong view of our sin, a wrong view of our salvation. Someone once said, you, you, you cannot have Christ in the heart and keep him out of the universe. God's salvation, God's reconciliation is universal. He began with all creation. He will end with all creation. All things are held together by his hand. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And let me ask you, if, Lord, if Jesus is Lord of creation, and then he's Lord of every aspect of our human life, it includes our culture, it includes our community, it includes our environment. Our forgiveness by God is part of God's purpose for the whole cosmos to reconcile all creation to himself. Expanding our mind, changing our thinking, making us, or helping us to be transformed into the image of God. It is a call to worship our God. The call is to worship our God. He is worthy as a Lord of creation, as the Lord of creation, as the Lord of reconciliation, as the Lord, as the one who will present us through his death on the cross, blameless, without accusation. As the Savior of the cross, Jesus compels and commissions us to honor him, to love him, to worship him, and to praise his holy name, and to be a witness to the world who he really is. Let's stand a minute. Let me pray for us. Father, we are asking that your word, the truth of your word, the, the, this revelation you have given us of yourself, showing the Lord of creation, the Lord of reconciliation, the Lord of uh, presentation, will cause in us a love, a, 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 an attitude of gratitude and worship of you. We cast down our fears. We put our faith in you and trust in you. For you will not fail. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the work, the reconciling work in your body on the cross. The glorious resurrection of the grave inaugurating the new creation and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would draw us near to the beauty and the glory of Jesus in the gospel and that we would worship him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.